Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. It's weird to be on this side of things. But like Jimmy Paul said, I am not going to be your next preacher. <laughs> I appreciate the thought. And, uh, but that is not something that I currently aspire to. And my name is not in the hat. So thank you for that, Jimmy, for confusing everybody. <laughs> or maybe they're not confused. I don't know. Anyway. But I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you this morning anyway. It's been a little while since I've done this. So, you know, um, maybe like Jason, I don't know where we don't do this regularly. Sometimes we get a little rusty, but I really appreciate Jason stepping in to lead worship this morning. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to just share a message with you this morning. I want to talk to you a little bit about something that um, I'm calling higher level living. And I want to start off by just asking you a question. Uh, do any of you just strive to be average Nobody in here just really wants to be average. I mean, seriously, none of us got up this morning, did we, and said, I can't wait to be average today. I really want to be average. None of us want to be average, right? I mean, parents don't dream about their children one day becoming average achievers. You don't see that on bumper stickers, do you? Parents want what's best for their children. And kids don't dream of becoming average athletes, or average students. Most kids really want to do something big, and so they strive to be great. And in our jobs, we don't usually strive to just be average performers. We really strive, most of us, if not all of us, strive to have excellence in our lives. And that's what Jesus calls his disciples to. I call this higher-level living. And that's what our lesson this morning is going to be about, higher-level living. Christ wants you to have a life of excellence. This is what Jesus was trying to tell us in John 10 and verse 10, where he says, I have come that you would have life to the full or to have the abundant life. And this morning, I want us to go to one of the most significant passages in the Bible that I think deals with this subject. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it in our scripture reading this morning from a couple of different places. But today I want us to look at Matthew chapter 5. So you can go ahead and get to our, our, our scripture uh, for our, our sermon today. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to be just talking about this concept of higher level living. In the book of Matthew, we see Jesus begin his ministry. And Jesus spent time spending, uh, 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 spreading a message of repentance because the kingdom of God was close at hand. And when we arrive in chapter 5, the scene is of a huge crowd. And of Jesus delivering one of the greatest teachings of his ministry, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's important to notice that the crowd is made up of people who were in large part already following him. And many had already heard Jesus' calling to a radical new life. So Jesus is going to show this crowd what it really means to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple of Christ. He's going to show them what it really means because, you know, it's, it's a lot more than just being the recipient of some great miracle from Jesus. Being a Christ follower is so much more than just being close to Jesus, your proximity to him. It's so much more than just kind of walking along behind him. Being a Christ follower is a lot deeper than that. And Jesus is going to take this opportunity to talk to this crowd of people and teach them what I'm calling is higher level living. So let's begin with Matthew chapter 5. We call this the Beatitudes, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These beatitudes are indications of a life that has surrendered to God. Max Licato in one of his books, Grace for the Moment, says this about the Beatitudes. He says, observe the sequence in the Beatitudes. First, we recognize that we are in need. Next, we repent of our self-sufficiency or we mourn. We quit calling the shots and surrender control to God. So grateful we are for his presence that we yearn for him even more. We hunger and we thirst. As we grow closer to him, we become more like him. We forgive others. In other words, we're merciful. We change our outlook, meaning we're pure in heart. We love others and we try to be peacemakers. We endure injustice. We're persecuted. He says it's not a casual shift of attitude. It is a demolition of the old structure of our lives. The old is gone and the new has come. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. I really like this idea of demolition. You know, I was thinking about that. And the first thing that comes to mind is, is watching a, a building being imploded that's being demolished for, for new construction. It's, it's a wild scene. If you've ever witnessed that firsthand, I, I haven't, but, but seeing just pictures of that take place or video, uh, take place of that. I was looking at several of those this week. Uh, I remember uh, looking at some video of the Astrodome. Um, how many of y'all saw that that come down a long time ago? A few of you are waving in your, you know, just to watch the Astrodome be exploded and, and then imploded uh, is, is just crazy. And, and, and that's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about this. It's a demolition of the old structure. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So Jesus looks around at these new followers and he begins laying out what their lives are going to look like. And then Jesus goes ahead and issues the challenge of higher living. He says, I want you to do something. I want you to be salt and I want you to be light. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Jesus calls his followers to first be salt. So let me ask you, what does salt do? What's its purpose? One of the weird purposes for salt was uh, it can melt snow and ice. Did you know that? I lived over in Germany as a kid. My dad was in the Air Force. We lived over there for about eight and a half years we got serious snow, and I, that was the first time in my life I'd ever seen this, but they had these trucks that would go out and just salt the roads. And I thought that was the weirdest thing as a little kid. What are they salting the roads for? And I was told that that helps melt the snow and the ice, and it made it a little bit safer for us to drive. Uh, that's one of the purposes of, of salt, but it, uh, more commonly, it's used to add flavor, isn't it? 
I mean, we, we add salt to all kinds of foods that we eat. It adds flavor. It's also something that can be a preservative. We use it sometimes to preserve things. And that's what we're to do with our lives. As we move about in this community, I'd like to suggest that we're supposed to add some flavor. Part of our purpose to be a preservative in a community that is susceptible to decay. Jesus goes on to say that if the salt loses its saltiness, it's of no use. This is what I'm hearing when I hear that. If, if I'm moving about in this community and I'm not making a positive difference, if I'm not helping preserve people from decay and ultimate destruction, then what good am I to God? I might as well just be tossed aside, right? He says, I want you to be salt in this world. You have a purpose. There's a reason that I want you to be that. So that you can add some flavor, yes, but that you can also be a preservative in this community. That you can be rescuing people and preserving people rather than leaving them to destruction and decay. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Jesus also calls his followers to be light. So let's look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under, under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There's some simple but pretty profound lessons to be learned from this verse that I believe is going to help us to see what higher level living is really all about. So let's take a closer look at what it means to be light. We've dealt with salt. Let's look at light now. First off, I want to suggest that we're to be different he says, you're the light of the world. I think what Jesus is talking about here might be contrast. I'm reminded of a passage that comes from, uh, from Ephesians chapter 5 that says this, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light and do not participate in the unfaithful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. That comes out of Ephesians 5, verse 8, and also verse 11. Not only are we called to be light, but we are to be light in the world. So think about that. Why does God want us to be light in the world? I think it's because he's reminding us that this is a dark place at times, isn't it? There's a lot of good that goes on. It's a beautiful day today. There's a lot of good things to look forward to. But let's not forget the world can still be and is a pretty dark place. And so he says, I want you to be light in this place. And there should be beacons of light pointing people back to the Father. We're supposed to be those beacons of light. God has given us this charge. I'm reminded of an old hymn, and I don't lead a lot of these. I know some of y'all criticize me for that. I'm sorry, but uh, guess what? We're going to sing an old hymn right now. Some of y'all know this song. It's called Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. I think this is such a beautiful illustration of this point that we are to be light in this world. So let's sing at least the first verse and chorus of The Lower Lights. Brightly beams our Father's mercy From His lighthouse evermore But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning. 
Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. It's a beautiful song, and it really just helps tell the story of what we're talking about. It, it paints the story of people who are struggling against the waves of life, doesn't it? Barely able to keep afloat. But of people who are desperate to find their way home. And we have a job, we have a mission, we have a role in that, don't we? We are the keepers of the light along the shore. That's our job. To be those beacons of light that call people home to the Father. You be the light that calls somebody home. Second thing that I think we see in this is that we're supposed to be obvious. The second part of verse 14 says that we're like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Have you ever seen a city built on a hill? Some places that I, I've, I've thought about this, you can't really see them. When I lived over in Georgia, in the Atlanta, Georgia area, um, lots of trees like there are here, but a lot of hills. And you can't really see a lot. I mean, there, you don't see great distances. But when you get out in this part of the country, you can see for what seems like forever. Uh, back when I was in 10th grade, uh, my family had an opportunity to travel out west. We were living in Alabama at the time, and uh, my father was working for a company that had an end-of-year convention in San Diego, California. So it's Christmas break, and my dad and my mom got this brilliant idea to pack me and my younger brother up, and we're going to borrow one of those conversion vans, you know what I'm talking about? The ones that, that were, had all the fancy scroll work and the plush chairs and all this kind of stuff. And so um, this was, I guess, fancy back in the 70s when it was first new, but we borrowed a family friend's van and uh, it, it got the job done. It was, it was huge. And we borrowed this van and we traveled from Prattville, Alabama to Dallas, Texas. We had friends from one of our trips, uh, one of our tours in, in Germany with the Air Force. We had church friends that lived in Dallas. So they said, we're going to stop in Dallas, spend a few days there. We had never been to Dallas. And uh, so we're going to spend some time with this family. And then from there, we're going to travel to El Paso, Texas. So we went in one day from Dallas to El Paso. That was the worst leg of this trip, I'm telling you. I didn't realize, but there is absolutely nothing from about Fort Worth to El Paso. We were just driving and driving for days, it felt like. And it was around the holidays. You know, this is uh, December time frame, Christmas break. I remember, though, it's getting really late at night. It's been a long day on the road, and we're, we're getting close to El Paso, or at least we thought we were. Uh, we could see the lights of the Rio Grande on, on, our, on one side, and we could see out in the distance what looked like a hillside, and there was a gigantic star, just a very simple star, in white lights out on this hillside. And in our view, it looked about that big. About an hour later, we were passing by this thing. I mean, it, was, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We could see it for forever, you know. And it was just one of those cool things that I remember that on this long, desolate drive across the great state of Texas, uh, we got to see out in the distance on this hillside this star it was just so cool to be reminded, man, we can see for forever. And there's that beacon 
kind of calling us home. You know, it was pretty obvious. I just remember that when I'm thinking about this. We're like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We're like those lights on a hillside that cannot be hidden. That's what God says about us. That's what he says about us. That we should be that obvious to the world around us. Well, what does it really look like? You know, in ancient times, cities used to be built on, on mountains and hills as a, as a means of defense. We understand this concept. You know, having the higher ground can certainly be a strategic advantage. When it comes to being light in the world, having the high ground is certainly a strategic advantage. It lets people see us. We don't hide. We stay obvious. We stay up. And we, we, we make sure that people can see the light that is in us. Which kind of brings us to our next point. If we're going to be obvious, we might need to also be strategic. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. It doesn't make any sense to put light in a place that it can't shine and be seen. And that's the same with us, isn't it? I mean, if we're those lights on the shore, if we're, those city, uh, if we're that city on the hill that shouldn't be hidden, then it doesn't make sense to hide it. It makes no sense for us to say, okay, Jesus, I'll be a light in the world. And then we go undercover in our communities. You know, we're like some secret agent Christian or something, you know. God doesn't want undercover Christians. You have to be strategic in making sure that your light is shining in the best places possible to have the most impact on the greatest number of people. So what does this really look like? Let's touch base with Jesus about this. He says, uh, or, or he knew how to be strategic. Jesus selected a group of men and equipped them to teach others so that those being taught could then pass along their knowledge. This group of men wasn't just given a shotgun start. They were given a plan. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. He gave them a plan. He says, I want you to be strategic about what you're doing. We see that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. So as we're thinking about being strategic here, what does that look like? Well, maybe it means that as a collective group, we're going to pool our efforts and we're going to shine one great light in the city of Longview and the surrounding area. But maybe at other times, we've got to be strategic in a little bit more individual way. Maybe we need to be strategic in the way that we approach our families or our friends, our jobs, our schools, our circles of influence. And we let an individual light shine in those places. Either way, it's about thinking about what we're doing and being strategic about it. Which brings us to another point that maybe addresses the why behind what we're talking about. Final one is that we're to be servants for God's glory. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Why are we to be different why are we to be obvious? Why are we to be strategic? It's for God's glory, isn't it? It's not for us, but it's for God. It's for His glory. Motivation is the key to living a life on a higher level. So what motivates you? What motivates you? Do you serve God or others to pat yourself on the back or to get the pat on the back? 
You serve God because some minister has tried to guilt you into doing this? Some of us feel that. It's not my intention. Do you serve God to have your own sins forgiven? I'll never forget that was the reason I got baptized. I was, I was about 10 years old. I had been to church with my family like we had always done, but around 10 years old, I started really wondering what that baptism thing was all about. And I'll never forget being at this little church, again, living overseas, um, going to this small church of about 30 or 40 people, pretty much all Air Force families. And I'll never forget that preacher preaching one of those sermons. You know what I'm talking about? One of those that he's just laying it on pretty thick. And I came home from church that Sunday night and went to bed like I was supposed to, scared to death that I was going to hell. I just knew it. I said, man, if I die right now, I'm in trouble. And I was scared to death. So I went on to bed. I knew I wasn't supposed to get up, you know, because I'd been put to bed at that point. But I was just tossing and turning in bed. And I, I got up and I wandered into the living room, see mom and dad in there. And they're wondering, what's going on? Why are you up? Something wrong? And I started crying. I said, I don't want to go to hell. And mom and dad kind of sat back and goes, what are you talking about? And that started that whole conversation, you know. I get that. Many of us serve God because we're scared to death of that. I get that. I no longer think that way. And I hope that you can move beyond that as well. Because we don't serve God just out of a motivation to have sins forgiven and to avoid hell. That's not really what it's about. We know that that's part of the deal, and we, nobody wants to go there. I get that. But I hope that our motivation goes much bigger and deeper than just having sins forgiven and avoiding hell. The end result may be a good one. People just might shift their focus from the earthly to the spiritual, but these types of motivation do nothing really positive for us, do they? Our motivation to serve God should be gratitude for being saved, Right? Slight twist on that, but man, gratitude for being saved. We don't serve to be saved. We serve God because we're saved. We serve God because we know what's been done for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So let your light shine because you're grateful. Do good deeds out of gratitude, not just out of a need for salvation. A life lived at a higher level is a life that values grace and points other people to the Father. That's what it's all about, isn't it? God doesn't call us to be average. He does not call us to just blend in. He says, I want you to be different. He says, I want you to be obvious and strategic about what you're doing. And we're to be servants for God's glory, not for ourselves. That's what this is all about. This is what higher level living is all about. It's a very simple message this morning. But maybe you're realizing that you've been settling for average. Maybe you realize that you really have been just kind of living in the middle. Not really striving for excellence. Kind of avoiding the bad stuff. But you're not really striving for excellence. You're certainly not trying to live at a higher level. God says, I I, I want to challenge you, and I want to remind you that that's not what I called you to be at all. I call you to live at a higher level. That's what might be attractive to other people is seeing that Christians, that, that disciples, that Christ followers really care and are committed and are striving for excellence in their lives. 
And that might be what's attracted to the world around us. I don't know. But if you've been selling your life short, if you've been setting the bar too low, maybe it's time to, to change some of that. We want to offer you an opportunity to do something about that. Because you don't have to leave here feeling average and continuing to settle for second best. If there's any way that we can help you, if there's any way that we can model to you what higher level living is all about, let us know how we can do that. Let's all stand and let's sing together. There's a habitation, habitation.